Apostle Paul says in uh, chapter 2, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others also. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word as we open to Philippians chapter 2 in a passage that is, you're not supposed to pick favorites, but... Uh, one of my very favorite things I've ever studied in any field of ever endeavor ever. I've never trans I, I've translated Philippians two, five through 11 more than anything else I've translated in the old or, old Testament or new Testament. I mean, I've done it more times by repetition. So I have, uh, you're, you're in for it. I have so much to say and think about what I've uh, just read and um, I want to do it all right now. Now, the good thing is that we usually schedule from 1045 till noon for um for our second service and then uh, there's no singing today so instead of singing we're going to hear the christ hymn philippians 2 5 through 11 where we learn the pattern of humility in the lord jesus christ and it is very challenging to us it is a call to constant repentance because it constantly reminds us that the focus is not on ourselves but on our savior it's not on our problems but it's on our savior it's not on the people around us but it's on our savior it's not on our ambitions or our prospects or what's going on in the near term or the far term it's on our savior and that occupation with jesus christ will make you fit for his pattern it will bring you into conformity with his character so we're going to take a long look today at the lord jesus christ we need the holy spirit to empower us for that endeavor and we break fellowship with god through personal sin and when you break fellowship with god you are quenching the spirit of god you're grieving him you are if you will stopping the effect of his influence in you known as the filling of the spirit and the personal sin problem is not something that we just agonize about it's something that we need to be cleaned up from so we stop our sin but we also need to in self-evaluation confess our sins if we confess our sins that's to god he god is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you know i'll give you a moment for silent prayer then we'll open in prayer let's pray
Our Father in heaven, we begin with gratitude and praise. We praise you for who you are and that you revealed yourself to us so that in our limited abilities that you've designed us with, we could grasp your glory and magnify it, exalt it, and praise you. Thank you that we could be for the praise of your glory and help us to uh, evermore reflect that glory as we consider your son. Father, we want to be what you want us to be, nothing less. If ever there can be nothing more, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is a sermon about humility, and my favorite sermons about humility always have some sort of story where the speaker does a self-own. That's uh, you, where you tell on yourself. Those of you who don't know about self-own, as the kids say today, where you, um, you tell a story on yourself in some sort of ridiculous self-deprecating humor, where at the end, everyone's crying about how funny it is that the pastor is such an idiot. So let's get to it. Um, the first time I ever got lost, well, I used to get lost in the woods around my house all the time as a kid. We had woods in Longview, Texas especially around the creek ditch system that was the drainage in our little neighborhood. There were all kinds of forests and woods around. And so I would go out there and explore. And um, we were never scared about getting lost because we knew the roads that probably a hundred acres of woods. That's right. A hundred acres. Anyway, um, we, uh, that's Winnie the Pooh. We, uh, we would, we would go and get lost in the woods. And, um, and then I would hear the, the, the ram's horn that my grandpa had given my mother uh, that told me it was time to come home. No kidding. What's that sound? Uh, so I got to go guys. And I think home's back that way. <laughs> so, but I would get lost in the woods and, uh, but I was, it, it was in a town that was in a different time where we were on our bikes all day for probably, I was probably doing 25 miles on asphalt on my dirt bike. Not the motorized dirt bike. I'm talking about the BMX. We call them dirt bikes. I don't know what y'all call them. Anyway, so uh, we're on our bikes all the time and we wouldn't get lost because we knew the roads. And I had this map in my mind of my neighborhood. And then we went to see my grandparents one time. I had a skateboard. I wasn't a trick skateboard guy. I just liked to ride it because I thought that was fun. And if I tried to do tricks, I would fall down and hurt myself. So, know what I mean? I remember the skateboard phase. All right, so, um, so I'm in my grandparents' neighborhood in Dallas. And uh, it wasn't a very dangerous neighborhood, but Dallas is a very dangerous place compared to most places. And our family was always like, my mom was always like, you always, you know, stay close when you're in Dallas. But I'm 13, 14 years old, and I'm, I'm, I'm on my skateboard in my grandparents' neighborhood. And it was cool because they had sidewalks that you could actually ride a skateboard on the sidewalk in the residential area and concrete roads. So it was like skateboard, you know, heaven, except for the seams. But you get used to that. And I broke my skateboard. It wasn't like a high-end skateboard, but I broke my skateboard. And um, in the process of, of the afternoon, I got lost in my grandparents' neighborhood. They had alleys. We didn't have alleys in Longview. And um, they didn't live very far from Interstate 635, the, the loop around Dallas. Um, and there was a pretty big interchange near their, near their neighborhood. And I knew I was in a lot of trouble when I found that interchange. I was like, oh, okay, we're in a lot of trouble. I was also late for dinner. And you have to imagine this is 1989. There's no cell phones. I didn't even know my grandparents' phone number. And of course I can't call my mother because she's at my grandparents' house. My parents are at my grandparents' house. So I'm just lost in Dallas. It was awesome. I'm scared. And here's how I got lost in my idiot brain about 
direction. I have, I have, I learned in this example, in this experience, I have no internal sense of direction. I know how to serve the Lord. That's my direction. But as far as like, where are we on the map? I got to look at the map. Um, (laughs) I was trying to superimpose my neighborhood on my grandparents' neighborhood. So I was always like, okay, we'll go over here and take a right. Well, the right does something different than my than my parents' neighborhood. It was, it was a weird, twisty neighborhood. So I ended up at the interstate and uh, didn't know how I was going to get home. I didn't know how to call them. I knew their names. So I, I, I did a smart thing, which you, uh, I'm not bragging. This is a very, this is a self-owned story, remember. But I did a pretty smart thing, which the kids today wouldn't know to do. I went looking for a phone book because I knew that if we were in the right uh, area code, I could find my grandparents' name in the phone book if they were listed. And then I could find out what their phone number was and call them. Pretty good for 13. You're like, Duh, that's pretty good for six. All right. So anyway, so I'm looking for a phone book and I find a pizza place that has delivery. It's a, and it's a delivery only kind of pizza place. I guess I had to cross some pretty six or seven lanes to get there, but, um, I get to this pizza place and I see a map on the wall. And as I recall, I, I looked on the map and I asked the lady, how do you, this is my parents, my grandparents place. I think it's off here. And they showed me on the map and I did a quick memory on where, and, and they didn't speak good English, and I wasn't going to f- try to say phone book in Spanish. And so, so I figured out on the map how to get to my grandparents' place, and I got there about two hours late. I did make it back on the map, which I learned that day, always keep the map close. Now, the reason I have to tell this cell phone story, the reason, cell phone, not cell phone, but cell phone, the reason this happened was because I was cocky about being able to get around because I was a boy scout and we had done orienteering the year before. And my dad went with some other kids and I went with a buddy and we got done with our map course within about 45 minutes of starting and my dad didn't finish for two hours and they didn't get all the points. It was a little rough map and it had these points on it. You had a compass, you're supposed to (laughs) plot the course and then walk the azimuth. On the, on the thing. And after the first point, I noticed that there were rough drawn roads on the map and the, the dads had placed the points at the ends of these dirt roads. And so you didn't have to shoot an azimuth or use a compass. You just take a right and go on the map and follow it. And so I finished very quickly. I wasn't trying to cheat, but it turned out I cheated. So I thought I was good at orienteering. My dad came back and said, how'd you do that so fast? You're a genius. I was like, well, A year later, I'm lost in Dallas. I get there. I get back to, you think I ever got to ride my skateboard at my grandparents' house again? <laughs> we fixed it. All right. So, um, so fast forward to this lesson I learned in Dallas that I had to learn again at West Point. Sophomore year, summer, the second summer at West Point before my, my summer year, before my sophomore year, we're in infantry training and we have to go do land navigation. When I've got a buddy, I'm actually pretty good at it. When I'm by myself, I get lost and I'm lost for like three hours. And now it's like this emergency because they've lost a cadet and there's so much money involved in recruiting these guys. And it's such a big threat that if you lose the, one of these 19 year olds or 20 year olds or whatever that are clueless. And I got lost in the woods uh, in the Hudson Highlands and, um, found a road and walked it. And finally somebody came on a Humvee because there was a search party looking for me. And that was probably the most humiliating moment of my educational career period. When I got back to the unit, my squad leader, who was a very wonderful, very sweet, very beautiful young lady who was a year ahead of me. When I got there, she was like a mom who had lost one of her children. There were tears 
It was humiliating. This was infantry summer, and I was lost. I had a map. I had a compass. I was lost, and I uh, learned. I repented of any sense that I would ever be able to find my way without being very careful with the map and compass. I don't know how many times in our early marriage that Krista would on the phone because we had cell phones now, she would end up calling her parents. We're late because David's lost. I mean, no, no, I'm sorry. She wouldn't say that. She wouldn't say that. Of course, she wouldn't say that to my in-laws. She would say, we're lost. <laughs> this was, and so as soon as GPSs came out, there was, there was a GPS module you could plug into a laptop before they had them in the car, before they had the Garmin's, there was a GPS. You could install software on a laptop and then put it in a, a, a USB connection to your computer. We're talking 2003. Now they had expensive ones, but this was a cheap way. And I would, I navigated all around Dallas when I was in seminary with that, that, with that thing until I got, I got a GPS. But I'll fast forward a little bit further from my West Point days to 2004. We're going to go to Iraq and I've got a mortar platoon and it's not fun and games. It's not getting, being late to dinner. It's life and death. If you're not in the right place at the right time. And I know I've got this weakness. I know I'm not good at it. I, and, and I've learned enough to tell the guys, okay, this is something that my brain doesn't do, but I can use the tools, but it takes extra time. So we really have to watch close. And thankfully, they did not use that to my disadvantage and play tricks on me. So I am going to Iraq. I'm trying to get equipment that's going to get uh, the things that I'll need that I'll have for my personal equipment that'll make me successful over there. I went to Walmart and bought a cheapo laptop, the most important purchase I made for the war because I used it constantly. And the stuff the army had was all secondhand and broken. So I had my own laptop and I really did a lot of work on that that year in Iraq. But I also bought a Garmin E-Trex Venture, which is a little handheld, look like your cell phone, a little handheld two AA battery um, GPS device. Now the Army GPS is 20 years obsolete. It's this big clunky thing. It's got batteries you can never find because they've got these really ridiculous Pentagon you know, purchased batteries. You can't ever find them because people hoard them. Then they're, then they're you know, empty. The, the batteries are discharged from being hoarded. And so, I, the, 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 the plugger, they called it this big giant, well, big GPS thing. I, I never learned to use it because I went through their training on it. I was like, oh Lord, this thing's, I'm going to get lost just trying to use this thing. So I got my little Garmin and somebody said, well, you know, the military maps are different than the civilian and that's just a civilian device. So you're not really going to have a good tracking with the, with the Garmin. But, and I said, have you tested that? Well, no, but that's what they say. Well, I took my Garmin with me to Iraq. And because I had this weakness, because I knew I wasn't good at it, because I knew that I had to do my very best, the first thing I do when I get there is put my batteries in, and, and it's Kuwait, and I try to get a, 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 a signal to my GPS. And yeah, and it's telling me within 10 meters of my position from over there. And I guess, I guess the civilian band satellite stuff is working fine here in Kuwait. Well, here's the interesting thing about Kuwait. It doesn't matter if you have the map, because it's all just a tan piece of paper with lines on it. That's Kuwait. It's all, it's just a tan piece of paper. There's no terrain features. The terrain features all change. It's sand dunes. So basically if you have to, let's say, lead a convoy of your soldiers, that's a bunch of trucks or tracks rolling together at night from where you are to where you're supposed to go 15 or 20 miles away in the dark with no road lights. Their only lights are the, the camps 
throughout the desert that, that along this highway system that has multiple branches. If you have to do that and you're relying on a map and compass, you are in trouble. If you're doing it from the top of a vehicle that's metal and you have a, a magnetic compass, you're in a lot of trouble. But if you have a Garmin Etrex Venture, $119, the best $119 I ever spent, then you can drive straight from this camp to this camp in Kuwait without any problems and not get lost. And that's what happened. We navigated, I took 25 vehicles from one camp to another. And here's the interesting comparison story. My friend who had a great sense of direction was the scout guy. He took a wrong turn and almost ended up in Iran that same night with his convoy of vehicles as they're trying to move from the port to the, to bar, to the, to the deployment line. And, and it was, you know, it happens all the time. People get lost in Kuwait. So I knew I was weak here. I, I cheated. I bought the device that would solve my problem in case it was life or death because you, you don't want to risk it. And I was able to be successful. Well, I was, uh, this is still true. I once picked up Jim Myers from the train station. Uh, the first year I was pastoring here, I picked him up two hours after he arrived at the train station because I got lost in Ledger. I mean, I know you can't make this up. You're like, Rosalind, you got a serious problem. It's like you're made for desk work. And I rarely get lost on the way to church. It's very helpful. Now, can you laugh at me? I hope so. I can laugh at myself as long as everybody knows that we're all laughing to a point because sometimes it, it feels like, you know, too much. But that, I think that we need to be able to do that because we all have something about us that's absurd. I have probably many things. I like to share this one there. I'm sure there are other things about me that are much uh, less humorous and much more egregious. But when we get to Philippians chapter two, we are told that the whole ethic for us to be successful as Christians is humility. And the pattern of that humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not the same as saying I'm a sinner. We have an Adamic humility where in the fall, we say, I'm fallen and broken and sinful. You better be able to say that. We teach that constantly. And that's a kind of humility. But let's put that where it belongs and then talk about Christian humility. It goes beyond the, the fact that I'm a sinner. And then it says with Jesus, who isn't a sinner, not my will, but your will be done. The center of Christian humility is your personal relationship with God, where you say, I want your way, regardless of my circumstance my preferences, my feelings in the moment, or any other factor. God, you are the ultimate knower and you know what's best for me. You're the ultimate wanter and you want what's, you want what's best for me. And so I choose to say, not my will, but your will be done. This is the model of Christian humility that we find in Philippians chapter two, when we look at what's called the Christ hymn. Now to set it up, I have to, um, There we go. I have to read verses really one through four for you to understand why, G, why the pattern of Jesus is brought forth. Because in verse five, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The command is a hard command for us to hear in Philippians 2.4. He says, Do nothing motivated by selfish ambition 
by vain glory. Let me pull it up there. Do nothing motivated by selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humble mindedness, one another regarding is more important than yourselves. That's the Greek with humble mindedness. As you think of the other person is more important than yourself. Not each of you looking out for your own interests, but only, but also each the interests of the others. In other words, don't just look out for what your interests are, what you need, but you're also looking out for the interests of others. This move from thought about self to thought about others. My illustration was meant to make you laugh at me. Nobody cried. We have to work on that illustration. I've got a recent getting lost story in the woods in, in, in a, a, another place. And it's a little bit too, right, too racy at this point. It involves firearms and police and stuff. But um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll punt and tell you later. But the reason I told you this is because there is a, a, an accepting in yourselves what your, what your limitations are. You know, as I think, I think Dirty Harry and Sudden Impact said, a man's got to know his limitations. It's good advice. But knowing my limitations, now the question is, how am I going to be perceived by others? You're around a bunch of armor people and cavalry people. Their whole life is knowing where they are on the map without looking. I'm the guy with my face in the map. <laughs> are we here? Is this where we're supposed to be like, come on, quit spazzing? You lose face. It's embarrassing. What are you doing with that GPS? I'm not getting lost. What I wanted to show you about the story was knowing my limitation and knowing that I had a mission, I completely was able to disregard my weakness at times. I, w I wish I could say perfectly, but I was able to disregard how I would lose face and just say, we got work to do. We got to get from point A to point B. This is what's going to, it's going to take to do that. And so I was actually God, in God's providence, I was successful because I had a mission and I made up for my weakness and in whatever way I could. I think that if we consider ourselves on mission, it would solve a lot of our problems about ourselves. You can't be looking down while you're driving. You can't, you cannot be focused on you while you're focused on the Lord and what he wants for you. And that is so, this is why these Christians that are so solid and mature and advancing and on mission, why Paul gives them this heavy teaching on humility because disregard of self and interest of Christ on what he wants. That's the, that's the whole key to success. That's the whole attitude we have to adopt. So he says this hard statement, you're humble toward one another and you don't think of your, yourself, you think of the other. And then he goes into what we call the Christ hymn. And I have a detailed look. I probably should give you the detailed look. I didn't know if I was going to do that. We adjust on the fly. In my English Bible, in verse five, it says, have this attitude. But in the majority of manuscripts, it says four, have this attitude or go on thinking this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The explanatory conjunction, this word for in my English translated uh, from this word gar, this word right here is your connection to what precedes. He gives you this instruction for how to live toward one another. And then he gives you this high we call it the Christ hymn, this high Christology, who Jesus is and what he did and how that becomes a pattern for you in self-disregard, self-disregard, not for its own end, just static, oh, just know I'm nothing, but in looking at what God wants and saying, disregarding me, I'm looking for what God wants me to do and to be, and that's what I'm going to be about.
For go on thinking this in you. Now, phroneo is your key word in the passage. We saw it a bunch in the last hour in uh, verses 1 through 4. And this is Paul's joy is if they think the same thing in the Lord, if they're of one mind. And this, this word is an active word to think. Now, in this manuscript tradition, it's passive. And I don't know how you think passively. Um, and that's one reason the tradition is to be of the mind. But I think uh, it's actually originally was an active verb, phroneo, and it means to think. It means to think. Now, if you think a certain way, you could see how well, that's how your mind is set. That's your mindset. That's your attitude. That's cool. But I just want you to know this is not in the realm of how we feel. This is absolutely cognitively, volitionally what you choose to think. And that is the difference between the Bible and American Christendom in my personal observation and critique. Christendom today is a feeling of godliness or a feeling of closeness toward God or a feeling of, of worshipfulness and, and just feeling um, what, what the world calls love, which is a kind of love and affection. And I believe we need that. And I think that's part of the Christian life, but it's not the focus and it's not the way you get there. The way you, you will experience Christian joy is you will think God's thoughts after him and he will bring this response. And that is an experience that you cannot have unless you do the first thing and think God's thoughts. So he takes you to thought. He doesn't say you're going to automatically be so affectionate toward one another that you feel like putting yourself out and inconveniencing yourself for the other. He doesn't say that. He's not like that. He doesn't think that way. The apostle Paul says, think this in yourselves, which was also in Christ. And the outcome of that mindset with its accompanying actions is eternal glory. Watch where this pattern takes you. We don't just read through verse eight and stop at the death of the cross. We keep going to the glory that comes only to Jesus Christ. And that is our pattern. Go on thinking this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although being in the form of God, did not regard it as something to be grasped. What the status of being equal to God. We'll clean that up in a second. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by becoming in the appearance of mankind. And after he was found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. This is my translation after a lot of agony over the years on this very difficult hymn. One of my favorite Greek professors, a man by the name of Dr. Bust Fanning, recently the retired um, department chair of uh, New Testament studies at Dallas Seminary, very important grammarian on the aspect of the Greek verb and his specialization and his grammar on verbal aspect in Greek is uh, probably the best on the topic. And he's the guy that has been holding the line for generation on the indicative mood having time inherent in it, like the present tense implies present time in the indicative. All the grammarians for the last 20 years have been saying, no, there's no time frame. And you, you, you're like, what is that? It's okay. If you don't track all the grammar stuff, I'm just saying this guy's an important, this, this beloved professor has been a very important. And I took everything I could from him in the time I had at Dallas. And I ran into him um, at a, at a conference where he was giving a paper on this. And it was a a conference where you could go to a lot of different things at the same slot. And I saw he was given a paper on the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And so I, I made sure to arrange my day around seeing that. In Providence, they had an ETS meeting, I think, and he gave this paper. And he said something that really gave me 
piece about all the work I'd done on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He said, no grammarian is certain about exactly how to relate these participles to these verbs. It's, it's very challenging, and that's why it's universally considered a poem. This passage is considered a song or a hymn that they were singing and Paul incorporated into his, into his writing. It reminds us that there's a lot going on in the prophetic teaching of the early church that we have echoes of in the written scriptures. But before there was a Bible, there were prophets going around speaking forth the word of God. And there was art being generated, and perhaps this is some of it. Let me show you some of the features here. Let's get this. Four, an explanation of the prior command to disregard self and concern for others as you're really concerning yourself for God's account on the other, okay? It's really, you go to God first before you go to people. Before you concern yourself for people, you concern yourself for God, your first love, and then God says, here's what I want you to do toward people. And so now you're on mission. That's the mission. Remember that. It's not just the mission is the people. The mission is pleasing God who tells you, here's what I want you to do with people. Remember that. Don't lose your first love. Four, go on thinking, present imperative, an ongoing responsibility. This is your mindset. This is what you and I are supposed to be sticking to. And we hold ourselves to it. And here's the deal with really high standards. Remember what I've said, and I'll say a million times. There are two things you can do with high standards. You can say, here's my standard, and then I don't meet it because we fall short of high standards. And then we change the standard because, well, I mean, that was a little bit much. A little too lofty a goal. So I'll be mostly selfless, but not like Jesus. I mean, come on, we're not crazy here, which is American Christendom. Or I will say, here's the standard, it doesn't change, and I do or do not rise to the standard. And when I don't, I change my thinking and go back to the standard. It's not legalism, it's God's way for you. And when God gives you a command, remember, he's the best wanter. He wants better than you want for you. He's the best knower. He knows what's best for you. When he says, here's what I want for you to do, it's the very best and highest and greatest that you could ever imagine. So humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God is the very best for you. Remember this, Philippi, or, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. But you go on thinking this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So now Jesus is the pattern for the ethic, for the attitude that gives you Christian unity, where we're disregarding self, concerning ourselves for one another, and therefore building a strong net that God uses to catch many fish. Go on thinking of this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here's what we know about Jesus. Although being, being in the form of God, the word to key in on, on, on form is morphe. That's the word form. And it's been suggested that by those that don't believe in the deity of Christ, that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. Right there, it says form. He's in the form of God. He's not really God, the Son, but he's the Son of God, so he looks like him. He's in God's form so that you see what God would be like, but he's really just a human. So the denial of the deity of Christ. Actually, this word in Greek, as the Greeks would use it, is a very strong uh, insistence on the actual essence of Christ being the essence of God, that he is divine. Let me read some really dry lexical stuff here. Morphe, this word form, rarely refers to the external appearance as opposed to the essence. See, when the Greek says form, think we're Greek. It's the Greek world and Greek thought and Greek form. If you know anything about philosophy and history of philosophy, form, very Plato, okay? We're not Platonic here, but the idea of form. It's, you can see 
their form, but you're talking about the essence of the person. That's what they're saying. The understanding of Morphe as essential being possibly points to Gnosticism, where Morphe and Ekon are synonyms, but Gnosticism had as little influence on Philippians 2, 6 through 11, as did the Greek magical papyri. We have all kinds of competing literature using this language, is what they're saying, in defense of the historic Christian faith. Morphe is, in Philippians 2, 6, refers not to any changeable exterior form, but the specific form on which identity and status depend. Here's what I'm trying to say. If you say morphe in Greek and you mean the essence, it's like saying name in Hebrew and you mean the person. Name, as the Hebrew idiom, is about the person of God. Form is about the essence, and that's the way the Greek mind thinks. So when he says being in the form of God, we're saying Jesus is God the Son. He's the essence of the Father. One essence, three persons. One God and three persons, we're saying. One being, three persons. And that language uh, cannot be improved upon in English. And I don't know if it can be improved on in any language. Who, although being in the form of God did not regard as something to be grasped, literally, as something to hang on to, the status, the status of being equal to God. That's, that status word is a, a paraphrase, but it helps you understand what he means. Equality with God in terms not of his essential being, like he doesn't stop being of the essence of the Father. He stops carrying the glory or the status that goes with it. In other words, if you are promoted tomorrow from assistant to the assistant, from the assistant to the assistant to just the assistant. If you get promoted tomorrow and someone forgets your new title and says, hey, um, assistant to the assistant, and you say, wait a second, I'm now the assistant. I mean, I've waited six years for this promotion. It's 35 cents an hour. I mean, it means a lot to me, whatever it is. If you get a promotion and someone demotes you because they forget, sometimes we get a little bit uh, sensitive about that. Wait, 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 wait a second. Did you just call me second lieutenant? That's first lieutenant. Actually, nobody in the army does that. Everybody's lieutenant. Did you just call me major? I'm a lieutenant colonel. Sorry, sir. Done you as major for the last two years. Now you're lieutenant colonel. The idea is that you have a status that you, you rightfully can claim, but you don't care. By the way, back to the army. The best officers were those that... that you wanted to follow regardless of the rank. Wasn't like the rank didn't matter. One of the most amazing people I ever worked for was a major. And I was, I'm shocked that his career ended. He didn't, uh, he didn't command divisions. Uh, but it's not, about, it's not about clinging to your proper respect. We do this. We get hung up on, you know, well, I, I will be treated with proper respect. Jesus did not insist on the right that he had as being of the essence of the Father. He didn't consider it something to hang on to. And so you can let go of your insistence on your proper respect as well. But he emptied himself. Kanao. The doctrine of kenosis, if you say that language in some circles, kenosis, the emptying of Christ, to some people it means that he stopped being God in some sort of heretical Gnosticism. You can't be God and stop being God. God is God. So this doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. It means that he emptied himself of his claim on being treated as deity. He emptied himself of his glory. 
the expression of deity. Maybe that's subtle, but I don't think it's that subtle. But this is your pattern. Emptying self is saying, it's not about me. It's about what dad wants. God, the father, what he has for me, he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a slave. By the way, I think I understand how the participles work for the first time after 20 years of working on this. I think I understand how they work. Although in the form of God, he didn't regard as something to be grasped, the status of being equal to God, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Also by becoming in the likeness of mankind, genomai to become. And so my Bible translates it being made because we don't say you become in the likeness. You say being made in the likeness, but this is, this is his birth. This is the incarnation. So understand what we're saying is God, the son from eternity past became human. And this is the doctrine of the incarnation, the taking on of flesh. What we're saying is the one that created mankind, created mankind with the view to becoming one of us in his original eternally eternity past design. That's what we're talking about when we say God became flesh and God lived among us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, appositional participle, by becoming in the likeness of mankind. It's an infinite step down. For you to take a little step down and not be treated as a lieutenant colonel, but as rather as a private, that's just a little step down. That's just... That's just a little, little step down. What Jesus did was an infinite step down from infinite glory as God to taking the identity, the form of a slave, one of us. And what that means is that there's an off force you there's a stronger reason argument. If he can humble himself before the father and do what God wants him to do, having been infinitely glorious. And then as Isaiah 53 says, having no appearance that we would look on him and be attracted to him, just an average guy. Now think about what we're saying. Let's exalt Jesus Christ for just a second. And the, what he did in becoming one of us forever. He's forever the incarnate son of God. I've heard people talk about, well, there was a time during the incarnation. Well, there was a time when he wasn't incarnate. And then at Christmas, he's born. He is incarnate. But then forevermore, he goes on being man in resurrection. The God man, the unique person of the universe. It's important not to make that, you know, the 33 years of the incarnation. No, 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 no. The, the eternity of the incarnation. Man is eternally exalted above the angels because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh of man. What else can we say? This gets into your self-image. I've told you the three questions you can ask and answer. There's probably seven questions now I think about it, but we'll take three. But if you ask, answer these three questions, you can solve any problem. Who is God? Who am I? And what is God going to do with me? The, the theology question, the anthropology question, and the eschatology question, right? You got to figure in what does God want me to do? And that's the mission question, right? What has God already done? That's the salvation question. There's all kinds of things we could throw into this. I'm working on it. Eventually, it'll probably be 15 things you can question, but <laughs> let's just take the three. Who is God? Who is man? And what is God going to do with? When we ask the question, who is man or who am I? You've got to bring Philippians 2, 6, 7 into that. You've got to think about the fact that Jesus Christ, God, took on flesh for you. 
to save you, to have a relationship with you, to bring you forever to be with him. Words can't express what honor we owe him, what glory we owe him for what he's done for us. So I won't try. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by becoming in the likeness of mankind. And after, I think this is a temporal part, after being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself, main verb. He humbled himself by, another participle, by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. After he was found in the likeness of man, we, we celebrate Christmas, well, Good Friday came. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So he humbled himself means to place under, to place oneself under. That's what humble, the idea of tapenao uh, is to, to, to put under. But how did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death. He's, this is when Jesus says several times, not as I will, let your will be done. That's what we mean by Christian humility is that God, the ultimate knower and wanter, gets to be the decider, and I piggyback my will onto his. God, what you want, have it. Have your way. And that's our prayer life. That's all of Paul's prayers. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Pray for God's will. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. Not as I will, but your will be done, is the Matthew 26 um, agony about what this involved. Then Jesus came with them, Matthew 26, 36, to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. They took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of his suffering that was, impen- that was, that was imminent, Let this cup of the cross, the death for our sins, let it pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know that night, Peter went into temptation. He was afraid of what the people would do with him when Jesus was arrested and he denied him three times. This is what he's, he's, he's talking about. And he went again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, if the disciples had prayed for the Lord Jesus, his closest associates had encouraged him and prayed uh, for him while he was agonizing in Gethsemane, it wouldn't have taken anything away from his suffering for us on the cross. But I want you to know the way the story works, that the closest closest associates of Jesus didn't even pray for his encouragement. They didn't even pray for for his fortification, for his strength, for what was coming. He asked them to, and they were asleep. He lifted the whole thing on his own, the prayer preparation and the cross work. He did it all for you and for me. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. Now, this is the gospel told from the perspective of Jesus and what it meant for him to do it the way this is described. It's the sacrifice of going from the glory of God from eternity past to the flesh of man with our weaknesses, not our sinfulness, but our weaknesses. And finally, the suffering at the cross, which is indescribable and covered in darkness on Golgotha. So, we'll have a sense of Psalm 22 as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we don't see it. We can't imagine what is happening at the cross. This is the gospel told from the perspective of Jesus as your example. You who have died to sin and risen with Christ because you believed in Jesus as your savior, who have his righteousness imputed to you at the moment of faith alone in Christ and your justification, you now look at Jesus who did this salvation work for you as your example for how you will live. Not as I will, but your will be done. This is Christian humility. The humility that says I'm a sinner is true and you need to say that. You're broken, you're flawed, you have your hangups, it's related to your sinful nature, and you really can't trust your feelings because there's a real strong connection between your flesh and your feelings. You have to think, you have to think God's thoughts, and he brings other feelings. That's one aspect of Christian humility, but what we're talking about here is for someone sinless who never did anything wrong and is willing to be crushed for the will of the Father. That's Christian humility in our example. That's what we're supposed to be. For this reason also, it's good to read fast. You do that on your own. Let's read slow together. What is the reason? For this reason also does not look forward. It's about to say something forward, but the cause he's talking about has already been stated. It's in verse eight. For this reason also that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the death of the cross, that he said, God, I will go to the cross on your agenda, on your plan, because he was willing to humble himself before his father all the way to the obedience of the cross. For that reason also, watch the pattern, we're not done. He, God highly exalted him. Get the connection. The pattern of Jesus is not just suffering for the father's plan. It is suffering in the Father's plan with maximum exaltation as an effect, as a consequence. And that cause effect is very strongly presented by Paul in his language. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and granted uh, the word charis in a verb, granted to him a name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So in his humanity, notice the language, in the name of Jesus, this is the humanity. He wasn't Jesus before he was born of the virgin. On what we call Christmas, when Jesus is born and she names him Yeshua, which we have nowhere stated in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, it's Jesus in Greek, and that means it doesn't matter. The tra translation of names, transliteration, isn't really a problem. We can call him Jesus. It's fine. At the name of Jesus, the humanity, 
is being exalted. And you're in your humanity, in the pattern of Jesus, in Christ through the baptism of the Spirit, united to him in his destiny. So positionally, you're already glorified and exalted because you've died with Christ, you've risen with him, and you've been exalted. But in your experience, there is coming an exaltation. That is the consequence, the sense of exaltation is a consequence of the willingness you had now to serve the Father in his plan for you, which is a mission like Jesus' mission, directly connected to Jesus' mission. Jesus revealed the Father by dying for our sins. We reveal the Father by telling others of Jesus and being persecuted for it. As we've already read in Philippians, Paul is suffering for the ministry of the gospel. That's the only reason he suffers. This is your pattern. I mentioned it before, but I want to read it to you. 1 Peter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. Isn't that the same exact pattern? For this reason also, God exalted him. It's, that's how it works. Romans 8.16 says that we are going to be fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so we may be exalted with him. That's the pattern. It isn't just the bitter. It's also the sweet. And you got to go through the bitter to get to the sweet. And that's the pattern. And that's, well, why is that the pattern? I don't know. I think it goes to the ultimate purpose of man in creation and history. And I don't think the ultimate purpose of man is answering a question Satan asked. I don't because that ends. The end of the Satan thing is the lake of fire, the great white throne and death and Hades and everybody, Satan thrown in the lake of fire. We have eternity of the new heavens and new earth after that. It can't just be that we're answering questions angels ask. I think it's bigger, obviously involves what's going on with the angels, but it's bigger. It's God's glory. That's what we're doing for eternity. That's what we're doing now. And that's what we're doing then. And you have that in common with your future self. Your mission is to exalt and glorify God. He told you exactly how to do it by making disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of Christ. So we suffer now and we're glorified then. And that's the pattern. Well, wait, 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 wait. I want to be, wait a second. Can I just be glorified now? Cool it on the suffering part. And then I'm in Christ. So I'll be glorified then. Let's do that. Welcome to American Christendom. But that's not the pattern that we're told is, uh, is God's plan for us. And remember what I said, I've got a theological conviction here that God is the ultimate knower and the ultimate wanter. And if he knows the best for me and he wants the best for me better than I can know or want, then I better just submit to that. You with me? That's humility. God have your way. And if it takes me through the valley, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now that humility will be expressed in obedience. So then my beloved... Philippians 2.12, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, with fear and trembling, your own salvation work out. I, I put it in the Greek order because he ends with the, the verb. It doesn't mean to work for, it means to work out, work from, caught our gods am I, for God, explanation, for God is the one working in you both to want and to work for his good pleasure. So if you take the pattern of Jesus, remember how we started. Let's recap real quick, put it all together. I'm always doing that. I know that I filled the cup up and some of you are like, the cup's too full, it's overflowing. 
Let's, let's slow down and get all the pieces together. We have two, one through four, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by disregarding self and the concern for others, for, your, for one another, because we're on mission. We're building a mission unit. Okay, that's two, two, one through four. With Jesus as your pattern, think this in yourselves, which was in Christ in two, five. And then the great Christ hymn, which we just had, Jesus submitting himself to the Father all the way to the death of the cross so that God would exalt him and glorify him forever. That's our pattern. Okay, you with me? I mean, that's not that complicated, but that's what we've just worked through. Now, what do I do with that? The so then. So then, what, do you, what, what shall we do? Don't look in the mirror of the word and then walk away and forget what kind of person you are. Don't, don't miss this. This is life. This is for me to live as Christ and die as gain. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That's one of the great themes running through Philippians. I'm in chains. I can't get to you, so I'm writing to you. So I know that when I'm with you, you have a tendency to walk the line. You need to do even better when I'm not with you. Now that's a high calling, isn't it? I mean, I comb my hair if I think someone's going to see me more than if I don't, right? But Paul's saying God's always with you. God always sees. He's always looking. And so his opinion matters much more. I tried to get to this a minute ago. If Jesus Christ is the ultimate personality of the human race, the ultimate celebrity, the ultimate exalted one, and you have him, then it really doesn't matter who else knows your name. It really can't matter. And in fact, as the, the other babies in the playpen of this human race get to know you and you gain fame, it actually detracts in your thinking from the fact that Jesus knows you, that you are known by the ultimate celebrity. Have to do it. Y'all ever see the 1957 Elvis concert? I think it was 57, 57, the black leather, 56. Was it? Oh, well, he was almost done by then. Okay, 68. Remember, what? it's amazing, beautiful guy, just, amazing what this guy was able to do, you know, destroying the culture. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, that was, don't hiss. I love Elvis and Jesus loves him more and he's in heaven with the boy. All right. He really is. He's not here. So, um, 68, right. He's got this concert. Did you ever see this thing? It's amazing what the, um, the girls are doing in this concert. They, are screaming their heads off. They're screaming bloody murder that it's Elvis. And the thing is that every once in a while he looks at them because he's sweeping the whole room and it's like a 360 degree stage. So he spins around as he spins around and the magical eyes of Elvis cast their glance upon somebody. They die at the very thought that he saw me and it was him and his eyes saw my eyes. And <gasps> imagine if he had said, Hey, Becky, Becky Johnson, that's the best I got on Elvis. Sounds a lot like uh, every Southern guy. Hey, Becky, come on up here for a minute. If he had done that, Becky Johnson wouldn't have been able to get to the stage. She would have died on the way. Right? That's the idea of celebrity. Which is, which is insane. It's just a guy, plays guitar, dances when he sings. And neat. <laughs> and not to take anything away from, from what he did as an innovator and all that, you know. 
but it's just a human that's just singing songs and everyone's losing their mind. And that's the, that's the myth. That's the vainglory. That's the lie of fame. The truth about fame is that Jesus has you in mind. He had you in mind at the cross. We have that from Galatians 2, 20, write it down. In Galatians chapter 2, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. And if he had Paul in mind, then he has you in mind too. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And that's Jesus, not the father. The father demonstrates his love. And then while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. But Jesus had me in mind and he died for me. And it's, so it's the father and the son in this transaction of the gospel at the cross. You really have to think that thought through. I mean, we need to get back to that thought every single day that the ultimate, the ultimate glorified and exalted one, not only do I know him personally, but much more importantly, he knows me. And he's standing there waiting for you to get back into the harness and pray. And he's making intercession for you. And some of that intercession probably is that you would be reminded to get back into harness and pray without ceasing. So then my beloved, just as you've obeyed always, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here's the command without fear and trembling, your salvation work out. It's a verb that means you're responsible to live out what you have achieved. You are in Christ, walk accordingly. And he said, he said that walk worthy of the gospel and one twenty-seven. only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ with fear and trembling, your salvation work out. Now this is very important for you to understand for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, that is the issue, not the works that we keep talking about everywhere we look in the new Testament. We're talking about the work Jesus did for you. And you need to understand a relationship with God entrance into his eternal abode with him so that you're with Jesus forever. All the assets that we read about, for example, in Ephesians one, uh, three through 14, all the things that are true of the believer in Jesus only come by grace through faith. You trust alone in Jesus Christ as your savior. If you've never done that, that's the only issue for you. Well, what about my sins? Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I can't do anything about my sin. I need someone to save me from my sin because God is going to judge me. And he's going to, and, and in my sins and trespasses, I am separated from God forever. God's going to have to save me from my sin. That's the cross. What you do about your sin is you recognize Jesus Christ and only Christ paid for your sins on the cross. And to not do that, to choose not to do that is itself a sin, which must be repented. You must say no to the urge to say, I'm going to do it myself, or I'm going to be righteous on my own. or I'm going to be a good person and maybe God will approve me. These are wrong ideas that amount to human arrogance. And we must say no to that and humble ourselves before God and say, only what you accomplished, only the cross, only Jesus Christ. I'm trusting only in him. But if believers you've done that, and my assumption is that you have, if you have trusted in Jesus as your savior, then you are born anew. You have a new life, a new spiritual life with awesome opportunities and responsibilities and growing up spiritually means growing in love. It means growing in the function of your gift. It means growing up in a mature way to be strong enough in the word to handle mature Christian work. And we don't grow to just grow. That's the sofa. That's, that's morbid. 
That's not any kind of lifestyle for you. It's not healthy. We grow to serve. We grow to work. And we grow in the work through the word. And so when Paul says work out your salvation, he's talking to Christians that need to live out by their practice what's true in their position. You're in Christ, so walk worthy of your calling. For God is the one working in you. I believe this is a reference to the work of the Father through the Holy Spirit resident in you. God, the Holy Spirit lives in you for this purpose. How did I know that? How did I know the reason the Spirit was given was for the mission? Because I've read Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. And the reason Jesus promised the, the gift of the Father that he would send the Holy Spirit was so that they could be his witnesses. You got to go back to the origin. Why did he give us the Spirit? Also, we'd be, we'd be aristocratic spiritually. Fine. If you understand that aristocracy carries heavy work that he wants you to do. For God is the one working in you, both to theleo, to want, and to work, or God's am I, for his good pleasure. God is the worker in you who is working the wanting and the doing. That's what that means. Well, I don't, I don't experience a lot of wanting. Okay, there's your, there's your prayer life. God, help me want it. I trust in what you've said. You've promised me here in your word that you are working in me to want and to do. Well, I don't feel the want. Can you help me with that? Friends, for the car to drive, you have to put it in gear. And there's something about wanting that involves choosing. What kind of life do you want? I want the best possible life. It's right here. Choose it. And that's why he says, work out. He commands it. It's a command of the scriptures. Turns out to do the work here. I don't really need much of a sense of internal direction from like where I am on the map. I can get lost, uh, you know, in my, in my mother's backyard. I did the other day. An undisclosed number of days ago. I had this crazy idea that I was going to take my mom's uh, woodland that she's got back there and I was going to walk the, the fence. Isn't that a great idea? Just keep the fence on your left side. Got to start here and end here, right? Well, it turns out, no. I didn't bring my phone, so I'm back to 1989. But I did bring two of my children, so that's really dangerous. I also brought my dad's snake gun because they're snakes. We even saw one. I think we saw a water moccasin. Uh, didn't see it long enough to shoot it. But anyway, I have my dad's snake gun, which is a 410 shotgun pistol. It's really cool. It's called a judge. Um, and it was all loaded with shotgun shot shell because it was, I was just in case we saw snakes and got the little kids with me. I couldn't find a machete in the tools, but I did find some loppers and there's some undergrowth. So I was going to kind of blaze a little trail. So I got these big limb loppers. You know, what I'm talking about the big cutters. Well, we started walking the hand, the, the, the handrail, and then all of a sudden I found myself with a fence on this side and another fence on this side. And I don't think either of them belonged to my mother. And um, so I was in the twilight zone. All of us, I mean, 300 yards in. That's a lot of fighting through brambles and stuff. It's not, it's not finished back there. So um, we do our best and I find the creek system. There's this incredible creek system with canyons. There's like 10 foot drop offs because there'll be these massive floods that come through and wash a lot of land away. So 
and then it'll be dry up back there. So there's these dry, mostly dry creek beds are running through and there's fences and markings from different colored uh, marker like th things out there, the, 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 the plastic marker bands, ribbons. They've got different colors for different properties. And I'm like, I hadn't seen that color before. And, and, um, and so not too long from getting started, I'm no longer on my mother's property. And then we're seeing how the other half live. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know the country very well. I've never spent much time in the country, despite what, the way I talk sometimes. And um, so I noticed that the other neighbors had a bunch of really improved trails for four-wheelers. They had bridges over the creeks. They had really nice deer stands set up overlooking deer feeders, which is legal in Texas and not in Connecticut. And um, I'm like, wow, that's why we don't see any deer. These guys are professionals out here. <laughs> But I'm walking around with a gun strapped to my chest and loppers and two little kids. So, I mean, that's the craziest look. Oh, and I had a shirt that had Jesus on it too. So I walked in, at one point, we walked knowingly in front of a game camera. You know what that is? It's an automatic camera that takes pictures of whatever walks in front of it in case a deer walks by. So at that point, I'm like, well, we better put the pistol in the back, in the back waistband so that nobody, you know, because we're trespassing at this point. I'm just trying to get my kids, you know, home. So we end up going, I hear the road sounds of the high, high traffic uh, uh, tires, high, high, high speed tires. So we, we, uh, we end up cutting to the road and that puts me through the, the front yard of this family whose property I've been you know, admiring <laughs> in my little personal survey of their land. <laughs> I end up walking to the road and we're on the street by street travel. We're a quarter, half mile from my mom's house at this point. It was great. The six-year-old did fantastic. You're like, daddy, next time let's bring the map. <laughs> if Inspector Gadget brought water because he always does pack water. So the 10-year-old had the water. It was great. We, we survived. Get home. Um, we're not really late for dinner. Getting better, right? And, um, and uh, so, yeah, I got lost, but we found our way back. And I, I had to walk through the neighbor's yard. I walked past a four-wheeler in a truck and, and a house where a dog was barking, but the house was all buttoned up. And I figured they weren't home. I didn't think to go knock on the door. Hey, we're here with our tools. And we didn't mean to trespass. So I just went home. <clears throat> so my mother wakes me up in the morning, like old times, and uh, say, <laughs> says, honey, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to do the voice. Did, did y'all sit on someone's four-wheeler while you were lost? No, we walked past a four-wheeler one time and uh, we were trying to get out of that yard as quick as we could. I wasn't running, but I mean, we didn't take a stop and we didn't touch anything. I made sure the kids didn't touch anything. Well, so you, the neighbors thought you were trying to steal their four-wheeler with bolt cutters because you had loppers. And so they posted your picture with the gun on your chest on Facebook and they called the Hunt County Sheriff and, um, and asked if they would come out and, and see about this trespass. Yeah, I'll take that coffee now. <laughs> God has a way of humbling us every single day of our lives. Well, um, before she, in the same telling of the story, she said, but the neighbor that we know, our friend, who's on Facebook with this community, my mom's kind of a newcomer to the neighborhood. She didn't know everybody. The, her neighbor said, no, no, I've met this one neighbor, got on Facebook immediately and said, no, he's a pastor. That's a good man. His mom's land is right by yours. And he got lost, I'm sure on the land and don't call the sheriff. And so she called the sheriff back and took the picture off Facebook, which I, I want to get a screenshot. Maybe if it's, if it's, if it's, you know, um, 
flattering. I don't know if the picture's flattering. It sounds like it's pretty menacing with my Jesus shirt and my pistol and my... Now that's, that's called a self-own right there. Uh, it's good to laugh at ourselves, but it's more important for us to figure out what life is about. What are we doing here? What are we here for? That's the message of the Christ hymn. Not just the truth about Jesus and his incarnation, but how that applies to you. Paul teaches as an application. You take on this pattern and you find your significance. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, there's no one to look to but your son. There's no great shepherd but the Lord Jesus. There's no one with a plan for what we're going to do but your son with his great commission and your spirit with the power of that work. There's no great empire for us to build. There's no great work for us to do but the work that you have prepared beforehand that we would walk in. God, put us to work. You're the Lord of the harvest, Father, and we will always ask you to send workers into your harvest. They say 3% of the people in this county believe the Bible is the, God, the word of God, which means that there are a lot of people here that don't know your son. Whether you use us to introduce them to Jesus Christ or you use other means, Father, we pray for them. We pray for their souls, for their eternal life, and for your glory through them, their willingness, their willing participation in your glory, not as a consequence of your wrath. We read in 2 Peter 3, Father, that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Father, we ask for New London County. We ask for our brothers and sisters that are not on mission, but they are Christians. We ask for ourselves that you would remind us daily of this mindset. Change us, Father, through your word as we consider your son. Let us let go of ourselves, of our claims to competence or glory or or ambition, or any of these things, and let us wholly be consumed by your interests, which equips us to do your work. Father, we pray for those who don't know Christ, hearing the hearing of my voice, let them consider him who died for their sins and loved them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.